But I do feel like faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord is a written word, but the word of the Lord is also our testimony. And there's power in our testimony. I, I just felt my faith increase powerfully in that moment through uh, Sister Ann's testimony there. And so how many of you are here and you currently need a miracle from God, a physical healing? Um, would you um, just, if I can invite you, I'm not trying to single you out, but if you wouldn't mind standing to your feet, I just feel like there's, there's an atmosphere of faith in this place here today. And if you see someone standing, would you stretch your hands towards them, a third part of your family or whatever, you feel comfortable, put your hand on them, that's fine too. Um, but we just want to pray uh, for sick bodies right now. Is this okay? Are you okay with this? Yeah. So Father, we, we, we thank you for your healing power. We thank you for the testimony of Anne and many others that you are working miracle signs and wonders in their lives. And Lord, we just ask that you would come and you would do it again. Come and do it again right now. Let faith arise. We pray for healing to flow in these bodies, uh, whatever physical ailments that they may be battling with or wrestling with right now. We just ask for healing to touch their bodies right now in the name of Jesus. That Lord, according to Isaiah, you're, uh, by, our, by your stripes, we are healed. There is healing in the atonement. So we receive that by faith in Jesus' name. We thank you for what you're going to do. And it's in your name we pray. Amen and amen. All right. Well, awesome. Thank you. No, there's, a, there's just such an electric atmosphere in this place today. You can sense it, right? Just, there's, it's beautiful. And um, to hear the voices, not behind, uh, anyways, to hear the voices, um, it's awesome to, to hear that and see that. It's just so beautiful. And um, it's going to take me a while to get my breath back after leading worship there. Um, my, my whole life, I, I grew up as a pastor's kid, and my dad always pastored small churches. So from the time I was 10, 11, 12 years old, maybe, uh, my father was throwing me into worship ministry and music and uh, just all kinds of different aspects of ministry. And uh, for many years, the youth minister would lead worship on Sundays and many times lead worship and preach. And, and so when Pastor Isaiah uh, was saying that he's going to be away for a month to go to Mexico to visit his family, uh, he was looking for worship leaders. I said, you know what, throw me in there. It's been about six years, uh, but I, I'll be fine just to do it. And um, I'm really sore right now, and my throat is really... <laughs> My throat is about gone, and I have to go, not only preach this service, but lead worship the next service and preach the next service as well. So, Holy Spirit, come, and uh, yeah, thank you for singing loudly this morning, because that really helps with the atmosphere. So, awesome. If you have your Bibles, go to Daniel chapter 10. If you are new here, my name's Tim. I'm uh, one of the pastors here at GT, and we're so honored that you would come and gather and worship with us. And we just believe that God is doing some incredible things in our midst. You know, this morning we are finishing up a, uh, an eight-week series on the book of Daniel that we have called, we have titled Resilient Faith. Um, what does it mean to live in a resilient faith in the midst of exile, in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of difficult and challenging times? If you remember last week, I made the statement, I said that in exile, God's heart is that his people would repent of sin and turn towards being his people again. That the judgments of God are always far more restorative than they are retributive. And that's important for us to understand that God does judge. God is just, therefore he judges. But on this side of eternity, I believe that the judgments of God are far more for the restoration 
of his people than they are in our Western idea of let's get people even for what they deserve. His heart is that when we enter into times of exile, into seasons of exile, or we feel like we're in a season of a pruning or a season of exposure or when all is falling down around us, his heart is would you repent? Would you turn from your sin? And would you return to be my people again? Now, in the outline of this book, in Daniel, we see that chapters 1 through 6, it speaks of man's activity within history, that God gives humankind free will. He gives us permission to make decisions and to decide every single day how to live and and how we want to uh, abide and walk in life and do certain things. And he gives us free will. And so it's connected to that idea of what's called secular history. But then there's this realm of biblical theology. And it's connected to the idea of God's sovereign purpose over history. And so in Daniel chapter 1 through 6, it speaks about the life of Daniel and how he's living in Babylonian exile. That him and his friends have been brought out of the city of God. They've been brought out of Jerusalem, the place that they know, the place that they're comfortable with, the place that they love dearly. And because the people as a whole have sinned over and over again, generation after generation, God allows them to be taken into exile. So they go into Babylonian exile, and the first six chapters are just about what does it mean to live with that resilient faith in the midst of this godless empire, in the midst of this pagan culture that they find themselves in that's trying to indoctrinate them with the ways of Babylon. But then chapters 7 through 12, it gets into the prophetic visions of Daniel. And so last week we did some time on Daniel chapter 7 eight and nine, and just talking about these apocalyptic visions that he's experiencing. Now, in the book of Daniel, you will see that there are two cities that are often contrasted. And this is important as we come to a a close here this morning. The first city is the city of Babylon. The city of Babylon all throughout scripture is significant of the city of destruction, the city of evil. In fact, John in the book of Revelation, he actually picks up on that as well. And it speaks of that idea of destruction. And then there's the city of Jerusalem. And it's the city of God. And so over and over again, this this motif, this theme that we see all throughout Daniel is God is trying to see these children that have come out of Jerusalem and into captivity. He's trying to see ultimately where their allegiance lies. Do they align themselves with all that Babylon has to offer? With all the wealth and the resources and these new doctrines that are trying to creep into their lives? Or do they continue to align themselves with the city of God? That even in the midst of exile, even in the midst of a pagan culture, a pagan empire, that they would remain resilient in their faith and they would align themselves with the city of God. Now in Daniel chapter 2, we're going to do a lot of review here today because it's the final, uh, final sermon in this series. But in Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king at that time, he has a dream that disturbs him about this statue that he sees. And in this dream, it reveals two things about human nature, that all human beings ultimately wrestle with what's called human insecurity. It's that we want to always be in control. Any control freaks in the room here today? Confession is good for the soul, right? We always want to be in control. And then this other realm in this dream is human hostility. And it's this, we become antagonistic often towards things that threaten our control. And so in King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he doesn't understand the full ramifications of it. But what he does understand is this, that my kingdom is great, but it's actually coming to an end. 
My kingdom is powerful, but there are many kingdoms that will rise after me, and I will not be eternal. And he's wrestling with this because of his insecurity, and then he allows hostility to come out of his heart because of it. It was the great Nietzsche who said this, if there is a God, how can I bear not to be that God? And I think that's where sin actually originates in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. That God gives Adam and Eve this full plethora of things to enjoy, to experience, to take delight in. But he says, there's one thing that you are not to touch, the knowledge of good and evil. You do not get to define what is right and wrong. I am God and God alone. I define what is right and wrong. And what does Eve do? For one moment, a moment of weakness in temptation, she participates in the tree of knowledge of good and evil, thus saying, in this moment, I want to be God. I want to be in control. And the truth is, you and I are no different than Eve from that day forward. The, the majority of the sin that we wrestle with over and over again is connected to that idea we want to be God just for this moment. Now, in King Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, he has the vision of this statue where Daniel comes and he reveals that there are five kingdoms that are going to come after him. And it's beautiful, beautiful because it actually lines up with, uh, with history and, and our understanding of even secular history, that there's uh, Babylon is the first kingdom and King Nebuchadnezzar is the leader of that kingdom. But then after that, there's the Medo-Persian Empire that will come in and evade Babylon. Then there's the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great that he will conquer the entirety of the known world. But after Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire, there's this magnificent, powerful empire called the Roman Empire. So mighty, so like this will be the one eternal kingdom that lasts forever and ever. And they have this humongous reign the dream reveals that there's actually one who is going to come in the midst of this fourth empire that will establish a fifth kingdom known as an eternal kingdom. And this kingdom will actually be sent by God because it will be the one where he is sending his promised son, his Messiah, into the world. And even though the Roman Empire is powerful and mighty and able to accomplish so much, its days are also numbered. It will not last forever. But when this Messiah comes, when the one sent by God comes into the world during the reign of the Roman Empire, he will begin something that is eternal. Something that will not ever end. Something that can never be taken away no matter what type of empires rise and fall. And it will ultimately be the kingdom rule and reign of God. And we believe that 2,000 plus years ago, that kingdom did in fact begin. Amen? And Jesus, while he's getting ready to go to his crucifixion, he even said to Pilate, he said, listen, my, my kingdom, it's not like the kingdom of this world. You can kill this body, but you're not going to stop my kingdom because my kingdom is in the hearts of my people. My kingdom looks nothing like the empires of the world. My kingdom is so unique and so different, and it's so eternal in that which is within and so in the book of Daniel, we see that over and over again in his life, God uses him and elevates him to a great place of influence and a great place of being able to influence the empire even of Babylon and the empires that come after him because he is a man who is distinguished, because he is a man who is excellent in all that he does, and ultimately because he is faithful, meaning he is consistent 
and integrable. And because he's a person of integrity, God chooses to elevate him and use him to bring great influence to the empire in which he lives. Now, in Daniel's chapter 7 through 12, Daniel is actually getting a little bit older in age. And he's starting to wonder, God, how long are we going to be here? We've been here for quite a while time, quite a while for, for a time now. And, and many historians and theologians believe it's probably been about 65, 66 years that they've been in exile now. And so Daniel, he begins to study the scriptures and he begins to pray and ask God, how long are we going to be here? And he, he gets a vision about this idea of 70 years as he's reading the book of Jeremiah. And he understands like, wait, we're, we're coming closely to the end. But what he has revealed in his visions is that you may come out of Babylon, you may come out of Persia, you may go back to Jerusalem, but you're actually going to be in exile for quite some time. There are going to be many leaders and rulers that come after Persia, after Greece, after Rome, and, and the people of God are still in many ways going to feel like they're in this exile. And so he begins to have all these visions that are written in this form called apocalyptic literature. All right, And this is what uh, Daniel chapter 7 through 12 are all about. There are these visions, these dreams, where he's seeing things that in some ways make sense, but in other ways they don't make sense. And in Daniel chapter 7 through 12, it deals with this theological realm called eschatology. Everyone say eschatology. Now that word, it simply means this, the study of final things. And if you were here last week, I talked about how throughout church history, there have been Four major views when it comes to this realm of eschatology or end times understanding. The first view is that of futurism. And it's the idea that all biblical prophecy is yet to come. So if we're reading uh, Daniel 7 through 12, if we're reading the Olivet Discourse by Jesus and Matthew 24 and Mark 13, if we're reading the book of Revelation, it's the mindset that all of this is still future. It's yet to come. It's biblical prophecy. Another view is that of historicism, and it's all biblical prophecy is filled throughout church history. And so many historicists, they try to align the book of Revelation with certain things that happen throughout church history. And then there's this view called preterism, that all biblical prophecy is fulfilled in the first century, really leading up to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And then fourthly, there's this view called idealism. And I, I actually would propose this is the healthiest way to read any uh, biblical prophecy or any end times understanding. And it's all biblical prophecy is symbolic of types of things to come in every generation. And what, what, what that means is that when you read the book of Daniel and you read Revelation, that there's some immediate context and there's some future context, but it's not necessarily about predicting literal things, but rather it's more connected to predicting the types of things that are to come. And so in this form of apocalyptic literature that was written from the time of Daniel coming out of exile into the intertestamental time, into the first century, into the Gospels, what's known as Second Temple Judaism. This was a very common form of writing. And it was something that was a, it was a specific genre which described visions and dreams. It was uh, the language and the imagery were symbolic and extremely cryptic. Uh, numbers, you see numbers all throughout apocalyptic literature. They were used as symbols or they were representative of something. And it was meant to unveil reveal or often expose structures and systems. And that's important because I would propose that the main way we should read Revelation is not that there, there is future stuff to come, 
But John's writing in the first century context to expose how weak the Roman Empire actually is. That everyone thinks it's all powerful, but he says, no, it's not all powerful. Even the Roman Empire is very limited in its power. Um, and it was not so much code to predict literal future events like timelines, but rather it was more to predict the type of things to come. And in apocalyptic literature, the person who's seeing the visions are constantly being caught up between the earthly realm and the heavenly realm. And this is important. You see this in the book of Revelation with John as well. He's seeing all the calamity that is happening in the earth. He's also seeing prophetically all that is going to happen in the end. And he's caught up in the earthly realm. But then over and over again, uh, suddenly he was in the heavenly realm. He was caught up in the heavenly realm. And in the heavenly realm, no matter what is happening down here on earth, Jesus is still Lord. Jesus still has all dominion and power. God is not thrown off guard by all the calamity happening here in the earth. And so apocalyptic literature was written to encourage the body of Christ in the midst of whatever they were facing. This is why John said in the book of Revelation, blessed is the one who reads these words. And for too long, many people have actually just skipped over the book of Revelation because they think, one, it's either too confusing, or two, it's way off there in the future sometime. But actually, if we read it correctly, though there still is futuristic elements to it, we should read it just like the first century hearers and say, Lord, help us to be encouraged in this now moment, no matter what we are enduring no matter what we are going through, because that's why apocalyptic literature was written. And so last week I talked about in the earthly realm, if we just get consumed by all that is happening in the earth, the constant thought that comes to our mind that we see in the visions of Daniel is, but wait, it always gets worse. That's the vision with all the four empires. It's, you think Babylon was bad? Persia will be worse. Greece will be worse. Rome will be more powerful and worse. And there will be many empires and kingdoms that come after Rome. And they will be able to do even more evil than even Rome did. So in the earthly realm, in the natural realm, it's always this, but wait, it gets worse. But remember, Daniel is also caught up into the heavenly realm. And he sees the vision of the one like the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the Father. And so in the heavenly realm, it's not but wait, it gets worse. But in the heavenly realm, it's but wait, it gets better. Because Jesus has begun his kingdom at the cross. And it is an increasing kingdom. It is a kingdom that will know no end. It's a kingdom where the government will be on his shoulders. And as Isaiah said, it will only increase from generation to generation. And so this is the beauty of apocalyptic literature. It helps us understand when we get our eyes consumed on all that is happening in the world, it feels like all of all the world is going to hell in a handbasket, right? Don't you just feel like sometimes everything is falling apart? It's absolute calamity. It's just crazy. Uh, where are people at? What, what is, how are we even thinking about these things? There's so much illogical thoughts that are happening. And we can get so easily bogged down by, by that. But as the people of God, we have an invitation to be caught up into the heavenly realm. To be caught up into the realm where we see that no matter what's happening here, Jesus is still Lord. He's still seated on the throne. And he has begun a kingdom that will know no end. And so in Daniel's visions, he has this imagery of these four beasts that arise representing these empires. And the beasts all throughout scripture, they are significant of human leadership void of godly authority and influence. 
It's important to understand that, that anytime hu- human leadership is void of godly authority and, and influence, eventually humans left to themselves, we literally become beasts is what the Bible says over and over again. And this is why we're able to perform all kinds of evil and horrific things on the human race, all right? Now, that was a lot of intro. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Are you confused yet? All right, we'll keep going. Daniel chapter 10, verses 1 through 19. We're going to read a lot here. And it says this. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all. For the full three weeks, on the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked. And behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from, and my thing just went blank here. There it is again. Technology is not working great today. All right. A belt of fine gold from Upaz around his waist. His body was like barrel. His face like the appearance of lightning. His eyes like flaming torches. His arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. And the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Verse 7. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision. But a great trembling fell upon them. And they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. Verse 10, and behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, Understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. For now I have been sent to you. And when he has spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. I love that. And I have come because of your words And the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. And I came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. And when he has spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face towards the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and I spoke. And I stood to him, and I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with the Lord? For now, no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man, greatly loved, fear not. Everyone circled that in your Bibles. If you have it on your apps, highlight it in your Bibles. Oh man, greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak for you have strengthened 
me. This is the word of the Lord. We may be seated here this morning. Now, what I love about that huge portion of scripture is that after Daniel has been having all these visions about all these beasts and all these crazy type of things that he's saying, the Lord comes to him. And many theologians believe this is what's called a Christophany. It's an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. It's either Jesus or it's an angel sent by the Lord to represent uh, God to Daniel. The Lord essentially comes to Daniel And he says, you've seen all these things. I've let you in to see all that is going to happen in days to come. And yeah, in the natural, it seems absolutely crazy. It seems like evil in some ways always seems to prevail. But what is said to Daniel here is that in the midst of all these things that are happening, I want to encourage you, Daniel, fear not. See, I think that is a word for us today in 2022. In fact, more than any other command in the Bible, the phrase, fear not, is emphasized more than any other statement. And yet, how often do we see in the natural all the things that are happening in the world around us and allow fear to often overwhelm us as well? And so Daniel, he's caught up in a realm that none of us have been caught up into. And he sees history unfolding in all the craziness. And the word of the Lord that comes to him is, Daniel, you've seen it. It's going to get worse in some ways, but fear not, and I give you peace. Now, the other part about this portion of Scripture that I love is that It reveals that while Daniel was in the midst of exile, that he was in the midst of trial, it reveals that, number one, that God heard his prayers. And this is the first time that Daniel is having that revealed to him. He's been in exile for almost 70 years now. He has said a lot of prayers, and I'm sure if we're honest with ourselves, that he was like us, that many times he questioned, God, do you hear my prayers? Do you hear my petitions? Do you hear everything that I'm wrestling with and struggling with and enduring? And the word of the Lord comes to Daniel and says, in the entirety of your exile, I want you to know that I have heard your prayers. How many times have you prayed things wondering, does God even hear what I'm praying? How many times have you prayed things and wondered, does God even care what I'm praying? How many times have you prayed things and you wondered there's bigger and greater things happening in the earth? God doesn't have time about my small need. I think this word here from Daniel chapter 10 encourages us that as the people of God, no matter what we find ourselves in, God is a God who hears our prayers. Amen? Secondly, we see this, that God, he comes to us. I love that that either the angel of the Lord or the Lord himself comes to Daniel, that he's felt like he's been distant, and all of a sudden he has this visitation, that God is a God who pursues his people. He is always coming after his children. He is in relentless pursuit of the hearts of his people, and he comes to us over and over again. Thirdly, we see this, that he literally, he touches Daniel. 
Daniel experiences a, a powerful touch from God in this moment. He's coming to the end of his life. He's wondering, what's it going to look like? He's disturbed by all these visions and dreams. The Lord comes to him. He says, I've heard your prayers. I've come to you, and I want to touch your life right here and right now. And with that touch, there's a, there's a transformation that happens in Daniel's life. He is a different person because of the touch that he's just experienced. And then with that touch, he is now marked by God. And this is important for where we're going in a moment here. With that encounter that he has, he, he gets reaffirmed. The Lord has heard his prayers. The Lord has come to him. The Lord touches him. The Lord transforms him. And now, Daniel, I want you to understand that you are marked by God. God. That's what's happening here in Daniel chapter 10. It's an encouragement to him that in the midst of everything that you are facing, know that God is with you in this season. He has not left you alone, Daniel. He has heard you and he will in fact come to you and touch your life and bring transformation and he will mark you for eternity. Amen? Now, skipping forward into Daniel chapter 11, it begins to speak again about this, this one who is to come. This horrific beast that's going to do all kinds of things and, and perform all kinds of stuff uh, against the people of God. And, and back to those four lenses, depending on those lenses of interpretation, people view who this person is differently. And so in one sense, some see it as his Antiochus, who would come and he would, he would do horrible things to the Jewish people and he would desecrate the temple and he would slaughter thousands upon thousands of Jews and he would sacrifice a pig at the altar. Some would say that that is the abomination of desolation that happens. Others in the preterist view, they would say it was actually at 70 AD when, when the Roman army marched into Jerusalem. They surrounded the walls. They starved the, the children of Israel and they, um, they completely slaughtered them. It's believed over 1.1, 1.2 million Jews were slaughtered in a matter of four months. And then they marched into the temple and they, they, they did away with all the tribes of the children of Israel. They, they completely destroyed them. That is, it's actually impossible today to know whether someone belongs to a tribe or not. Now, there's passed on history of that, but there's no actual record of it in the sense of, of being written down. They, they destroyed their ability to, to uh, perform sacrifices and worship at the temple. And so some people, they read Daniel chapter 11, and, and they, they look at it and they say, well, it has to be what happened, the events that happened in 70 AD. And then others, they look at it and they say, wait, it's actually speaking of a one who is going to come in the future before the second coming of Christ. That there is, there is one final antichrist is going to come and persecute the people of God and do horrific things. And then uh, Christ will come for his beloved again. And as I said last week, in a sense, in a sense, they're all kind of partially right. And that's important when you read apocalyptic literature. That there was an immediate context. There was a context coming in their generation and then usually it had this parallel of speaking towards what's to come in the future still. So in a sense, they're all kind of partially right. But I love it in Daniel chapter 11, verse 32. Daniel says this, he sees this vision and, and the word is spoken to him and it speaks about this, this antichrist type of figure that is to come, this beast that is to come. And it says, he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But I love this line. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. 
So whether it's meant to encourage the people that are living in Antiochus' day or under the Emperor Titus or the Emperor Nero before him, or whether it's some future Antichrist beast-type figure that comes, the word of the Lord in Daniel chapter 11 is, yeah, this Antichrist, this beast, will seduce many with flattery. Oh, but for the people who know their God, they shall stand firm and take action. And so there's an encouragement that comes to the people of God for Daniel's day and future generations that we would continually be a people that know our God. That we would not be distracted by false teaching and false doctrine. That we would not uh, buy into the humanistic philosophies of the day. That we would be a people committed to experiencing the tangible presence of God when we gather together in worship. Because in the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. There are pleasures forevermore. In the presence of God, sin cannot stand. In the presence of God, the words of flattery and the deceit of the world cannot captivate our hearts and our mind. And Daniel, he gives that word for those who know their God, they will be the one that stand firm and they will take action. In Daniel chapter 12, verses eight through 12, it says this, and I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. For many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. But the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand. But those who are wise shall understand. And from that time that the regular burnt offering is taken away, and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. But verse 12, blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. Now, I want you to catch this. People in eschatology try to make all kinds of predictions around these numbers. But remember, numbers in apocalyptic literature are always what? Symbolic of the types of things to come. So three and a half, partial fulfillment. Seven, completion. We talked about that last week. And so Daniel, he, in Daniel chapter 12, he, he says that, yes, there's this one who is coming who will do all kinds of evil things and, and try to perform these things. But there are many who will purify themselves and make themselves white and refined. And in this time of tribulation, in this time of persecution, uh, it will last for a partial time. But the encouragement that comes is, blessed is he who waits and arrives at 1,335 days. Now, I want you to catch this. Essentially, what is being conveyed to Daniel here is blessed is the one who perseveres and endures to the end. In fact, I would propose that preservation within and endurance to the end are two constant motifs in apocalyptic literature for the people of God. So we, many times, when we read apocalypses, we get all distracted by all these predictions, all these dates, all these numbers, and they always end up being falsified, right? There's not one single person that's made a prediction about the coming of the Antichrist or the second coming of Jesus that's been accurate yet. So stop buying their books. Stop listening to their preaching. 
it's always falsified, all right? That's a little practical takeaway. If someone says, I got it figured out, I've decoded the book of Revelation. No, they haven't. Jesus made it clear. No one knows the time nor the hour. The numbers are not about predictions. It's about types of things to come. The numbers are to say there will be seasons of great tribulation. There will be seasons where beasts arise and they oppress the people of God and they try to to deceive the people of God with their flattery and all their stuff that they have to offer, just like King Nebuchadnezzar did to Daniel. And you will go through some stuff in life You will go through some hardship. You will be persecuted because of your faith in Jesus. The encouragement here is blessed is the one who does not give up and perseveres to the end. Blessed is the one who does not give their allegiance to the empires of the world, but they give their allegiance to the one and true kingdom of God. Perseverance and endurance is the encouragement that apocalyptic literature should, in fact, give us. And if we're, if we're honest, I know I don't want to get carried away, but these last couple of years, in a lesser way, have felt like a, a time of exile. Maybe not like Daniel's day, maybe not like the first century. It hasn't been that hard. I don't want to glamorize it. But in some ways, it's, it's felt like an exile. We've had those moments where we felt like, God, where are you? What's going on in the world? There's all kinds of craziness and chaos happening. And I'm not just talking about a virus. I'm talking about the, 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 the systems that come out of that and the opportunists that come out of that and, and people dividing against one another and, and hating on each other and the, the division, the strife. In many ways, it, it's felt like this exile. And we've been wondering, how long, oh Lord? How long will this last? Well, I would love to say that it would only last two weeks. But I remember a a commenter that I listened to, he said, get ready for 18 months to two years. And I remember I said, I'm done listening to that podcast. I'll never listen to you again. I don't have time for that type of negativity. I'll I'll give you two months, but not, not two years, right? And sure enough, here we are two years later. And in some ways, we, we still have that feeling. And I think the word of the Lord that is given to us here today is blessed is the one who is faithful to the end, that endures in the midst of all things. It, it's not just going to be 1,290 days, but it's, it's those that go past that moment. And they're faithful and they're integrable in all that they do. Now, real quickly, flash forward to the book of Revelation. Here we go. I want you to see this. You can't read Daniel and not see the connection with things that happen in the book of Revelation. Now, the Apostle John, he writes this book, the book of Revelation, probably anywhere between 85 to 95 AD, though that is debated by many scholars. And it's also written in the same form of apocalyptic literature that we see in Daniel. And so there are, there are many similarities, though I don't believe they are necessarily talking about the same events, but rather the same type of events to come. In fact, this was, this was common for many New Testament writers. They would reapply or they would repurpose Old Testament texts. And so like Daniel, the apostle John, he is seeing visions where he is constantly caught up between the earthly realm and the heavenly realm. There's all these parallels with the book of Daniel here for John and Revelation. I don't think they're talking about the same thing, but they're talking about the same types of things that are happening. And so like Daniel, John, he, he wants to encourage the persecuted church of his day 
and the persecuted church of every generation after them who are going to experience terrible persecution at the hands of beasts and empires that are led by satanic influence. And like Daniel, John, he emphasizes this motif of endurance to the end. I want to say this. If you only read the book of Revelation as futuristic, you miss the blessing that comes. It doesn't mean there isn't futuristic. There is. But for the first century hearers, when they heard the writings of John in this apocalyptic literature, it would have instilled hope and encouragement into their lives. If we only look at it as confusing biblical prophecy for the future, we miss the blessing that it's meant to give us. And so in Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 through 12, I'm skipping fastly through this, but I think you'll get it. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brother have been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. John writes about the persecuted church in his day and the persecuted church in generations to come. And he, in Revelation 4, talks about what's happening in the heavenly realm. Day and night, they cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's what's happening in the heavenly realm. In the earthly realm, the accuser, Satan, is doing what? Accusing them day and night. In the heavenly realm, everyone is fixated on Jesus, who is King and Lord. In the earthly realm, the Satan is always accusing the people of God. And John writes them and says, listen, in the earthly realm, we overcome him being Satan by what Jesus did at the cross at Calvary, the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony and by not loving our lives even unto death. You see, as Nebuchadnezzar had a dream about his days being numbered, I want you to understand this. The devil, the dragon, all through the book of Revelation knows that his days are numbered and his time on earth is limited. The beginning of the end happened at the cross. The devil knows his days are numbered. And so this is why he tries to bring havoc and calamity to the people of God. But the true remnant know that he is conquered, know that he is a defeated foe, and they do not allow his antics to deter their resilient faith and their mission. And the natural, he's accusing, he's bombarding, he's lying, he's deceiving. Day and night, the enemy is trying to attack the people of God. But oh, beloved, in the heavenly realm, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This is why we have to be caught up into the heavenly realm over and over again. And it happens through the power of prayer and the power of worship and the power of our testimony. Because down here, it's always fighting for our allegiance, always fighting for our attention. In Revelation chapter 13, there are two beasts that are revealed. The, verse, the first beast, I believe, is symbolized as the Roman Empire, the ten horns, the seven heads. However, even though Rome causes all kinds of death and calamity for the people of God, its days are also numbered. The second beast comes from the same spirit, the foundation that is satanic as the first beast, but with more power and able to do more evil. It's that idea, but wait, it gets worse. 
And this beast in Romans 13 will demand complete allegiance and will require you to place your trust and hope in its provision and resources. The mark will be on the head and on the hand. The head speaking of the intellect and the thoughts and the right hand speaking of our ability to work and also authority. And John sees that this beast number is the number 666. Now I've heard all kinds of funny stuff about that for many, many decades, all right? But the reality is that 666 is the number of man. 666 is the number of beasts. Beasts are what? Human authority or human leadership devoid of, of godly authority and influence. So there, yes, will be one final, but I want to say there have been many beasts throughout the church history for the last 2,000 years who are demanding for the attention and allegiance of the people of God. Now, some people would say that 666 is this Gematriff or Nero who's an emperor, but the problem is Nero's actually dead at this time. But it's actually believed in ancient literature that they believe that Nero would rise up in some type of resurrection way and begin to persecute the people of God. But I think all those things really miss it. What I believe John does here, as he does in many places, is that he shows the, the progression of this evil that will happen, that it's all rooted in the dragon. It's all rooted in Satan. And in his context, the Roman Empire is influenced by satanic leadership. But he says in the Revelation that there's, there's others to come. There will be beasts, there'll be antichrists. In fact, in one part in his epistles, he says, there's, there's many antichrists. They're, they're already here and now and upon. We're always looking for one final one and not recognizing that spirit is already here and now uh, within the world today. And he says in Revelation 13, it's all rooted in Satan and in his context, the Roman Empire, but there'll be future beasts that are led by this antichrist spirit. But I love it. John transitions to Revelation 14. In Revelation 14, verses one through five, he has another vision. And it says, Then I looked up, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like a roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders, no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who have been redeemed from the earth. Verse four, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb. And in their mouth, no lie was found. Now what I love about this vision here is that many people speculate once again about Revelation 14 and about this 144,000 and I would say they miss the big point. This remnant that John sees in Revelation 14 are those who are marked by God. There was a remnant within Israel and then there is a remnant within the church and there's a remnant within every generation. I don't think like the Jehovah Witnesses talk about a literal 144,000 that are already up and we're all just hoping for better things, right? No, it's speaking symbolically here about a remnant in every generation that are marked by God. Now, that was a lot, but hold up for a second. Revelation 13, John says, I see a beast 
and an evil beast who comes after him. And they will persecute the people of God and they will try to mark the people of God on their heads and their hands. What, what it's signifying is allegiance. It's signifying where do you put your ultimate trust and hope in? The beast? The empire? In Daniel's day, everything that Babylon can offer? This is what the whole series has been about. Babylon has all this stuff to offer you and, and tries to entice Daniel and the children of Israel. Do you put your hope and trust in that? In John's day, Rome, everything that Rome has to offer? Rome is progress. Rome is success. Rome is power. We have everything to offer you. Do you allow yourself to be marked by that? Or do you identify like those in Revelation chapter 14, even if there is futuristic element here, those that are marked by the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world? So really, the entirety of the book of Revelation is connected to this. Who will you be marked by? The beast or the lamb? Who will you identify more with? The book of Daniel, the city of destruction or the city of God? That was a lot to say that, wasn't it? But I think this is important because we should read this and it should inspire us and encourage us in the midst of whatever we are facing, that we know in the natural, there is all this stuff that is trying to compete for our attention in our allegiance. But we as the children of God are meant to be caught up in the heavenly realm where Jesus is King and Jesus is Lord and he holds all authority and power. And our trust, which is connected to our allegiance, should never be in the systems and structures and empires of man. Our trust should only be in the, the rule and reign of God. Because if our trust is in anything in this earth, how many understand this? It will always fail you and always let you down. I said it to someone this week. They're, they're griping about a friend of mine, griping about everything going on and the world today and systems, government and everything. And I said to him, I said, why, why are you surprised? Why are we surprised? The, the world will be the world. Their allegiance is to a different kingdom. They're marked by a different mark. Is this making any sense here this morning? They, they, are, they are enthralled with a different realm. Why are you surprised you profess Jesus as Lord? We know it's real. We know it's painful at times and it's hard at times. But oh, beloved, there is an invitation for the people of God to be consumed by that which is eternal, by that which is the heavenly realm to be caught up and say, I will be one who is marked by the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the Lord. My sole allegiance is to the kingdom of Jesus. That's why even in living in the U.S. for 21 years, I would never say the Pledge of Allegiance. Not because I wasn't unpatriotic and I think that patriotism is evil. It's not evil. It can get out of bounds sometimes. But I would never say it because my sole allegiance is never to nation. I want to be a good citizen. My sole allegiance is to the kingdom rule and reign of Jesus in him alone. Now, amen. I want you to stand. I had to wrap up three chapters really quickly there. And now some of you are like, well, that was a lot. But back to that last slide there. 
if you remember nothing else, the encouragement from apocalyptic literature for us today, and all the craziness where it feels like uh, Daniel is doing whatever kind of stuff, you know, he's like he's, he's caught up and John's caught up. Our encouragement is simply this question, who, who will we be marked by? Will we identify more with political party? Will we identify more with cultural taboos or cultural wars? And if we're honest, in the last two years, if we're honest with ourselves, many of us have identified more with where we stand on things that have nothing really to do with the kingdom of Jesus. And it's divided the people of God. But oh, here at Glad Tidings, that we would be a people that no matter what is happening in the earth, we would be caught up with what is happening in heaven. And we would be marked by the Lamb of Jesus. Amen? So I want you to put out your hands in a posture of prayer. i got to close quickly here today because I've gone long. But I want to pray blessing over you here today as you go. Lord, we declare your goodness and your favor over the people of God here today. For all those that are here in person and those that are online joining us, we pray right now that your Holy Spirit would come and do such a transformative work in their lives. Maybe for some here today, they just need to be reminded that you hear their prayers. You hear them. You see them. You know it's been a difficult two years for their life. You know it's been a difficult 10 years for their life. But you, you hear them. You see them. And you desire to come and, and touch them restore them and transform them but ultimately you desire to mark them in the same way you marked Daniel would you come would you mark our lives that we are a different people because of your mark on our lives and Lord I pray that you would help us as a church not to allow ourselves to get distracted by all that is happening in the world help us to be consumed by the kingdom of Jesus perilous days will come suffering is inevitable but oh, that we would be resilient in our faith and we would have our sole allegiance to Jesus, who is, who was, and who is to come. Who is, and who was, and is to come. You are King. Jesus is King. Jesus is Lord. And Caesar is not. So help us to be committed to that. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your patience. Next week, we start a new series on the cross. Road to the cross. We're going to be in the gospel. It's going to be great. If you need prayer for anything, we would love to pray with you. If you got to go, go in the power and strength of his might. Have an incredible week. Know where your allegiance lies. Amen.